we have light in every cell that's measurable and and interestingly cancer cells lose their light which is i think very significant but we are we are light we are energy we are wave we are a frequency and we are here having a spiritual experience while being physical you're listening to the almost 30 podcast hosted by krista williams and lindsay simsick Almost 30 started as a conversation about the transition from our 20s to our 30s. But then we realized life is full of transitions. So we expanded our mission. We are an intuition-led, wellness-focused lifestyle podcast that promises to deliver authentic conversations, diverse points of view, and insights rooted in optimism, growth, and intention. The Almost 30 Nation community is a group of purposeful dreamers who are smart, passionate, and always seeking the full potential in every aspect of their lives. At Almost 30, we're making magic together. We dream it, and then we do it. Thanks so much for tuning into the Almost 30 Podcast. Here we go. Hello, welcome back to Almost 30 Podcast. Hey everybody, it's Lindsay Simsick. And Krista Williams. (laughs) And if you're new here, we're so glad you're here. Yeah, it's been a... Sometimes we get into that voice and I just I just realized that my voice sounded (laughs) fucking beautiful today. I actually was (sighs) checking out at Sun Life a while ago. And the guy at the cast register said, he's like, you have a beautiful voice. Oh. I was like, I make money off my voice. <laughs> I mean, it's a nice, that's a nice compliment. It was very sweet. Actually, one time when I was little, I was probably, I was 10 years old and I was in the back of someone's van and it was some mom. And I was in the captain's seat of the van. And she said to me, you have a really nice voice. And it's a memory that I've always remembered. Isn't that weird? Because I can't remember anything else, to be honest, in my life. But it was probably like all the kids were like cute and talented. (laughs) You have a great voice. Yeah. She's like, wow, you're so pretty. I don't want to see you, but. Honestly. (laughs) She's like, yeah, that that voice is, it's all right. You got that voice. You got it going for you. Everyone's got one. And you've got one too. (laughs) I remember when I was little, I wanted a raspy voice more than anything ever. And Who I had a raspy voice that you looked up to. Uh, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Oh, really? <laughs> Probs. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it was, it's that past life boy shit. I'm like, I want to be like a boy. No, but he had like a cute raspy voice. And so I would scream into my pillow until I lost my voice. <laughs> I'd literally go, ah! and it would just like raw my voice Christ, out. Totally. And then I'd be like, hello. <laughs> it's like when you try and age yourself. Oh man. I mean, or when you're little, totally. like I want braces or I want oh, glasses the braces or thing. whatever. Cause people that are older have that yet. That's, that's hilarious. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> the shit that we thought was like, I don't even like who didn't, was someone not watching me? Totally. Do you know what I mean? When I was doing some weird stuff like that. Totally. Who was this? Why? I remember I was, I don't know if I was babysitting. We were talking to this one person. She had kids and she was like, yeah, they can just play together. She had like two kids. She's like, you know, they should be playing together. And I was like, wow, what an icon. Just As like opposed letting, to letting, like- to Like being in the mix, like sitting, oh. there, like, like just a mom letting her kids play by themselves. Totally. Icon. I, nothing melts me more when I see young siblings get along and hug each other yeah. and play together. I was watching Sophie. Sophie Sophie's kids. I, I've been called to Tel Aviv lately. 
I keep getting oh, signs yeah. about it. But um, I was watching her story and, you know, little Leo and Kai had like an issue about something and they worked through it so beautifully together. So cute. My friend Orly, her kids are like that. One's a, a oh. boy and a girl and they just freaking love each other so much and just take care of each other. You know, like when mom's not watching and she'll like capture it. I'm like, oh. That's like in their natural nature as kids. I don't remember being like that. And I'm sorry Same. to my siblings. Straight up. But maybe I wasn't. I just don't remember. But like, mm, don't think so. Same. <laughs> I remember being in the car. We would go to Michigan and I was sitting there and she would keep, and I remember she kept looking at me. And oh, I, yeah. <laughs> been so mad. I was like, she keeps looking at me. And I would scream my head off. Oh, yeah. Same. Yeah. The looking was like. The looking at, or, or like. <laughs> oh. Or, or the, cop, oh. the copying. Oh, copying. Hundred. Like I'd say something and she'd be like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> totally. I do that to Justin a lot. And I'm like, but looking back and I, we have so many family videos. And when I look back, I'm like, oh my God, my siblings were so cute. How was I ever mean to them? I know. And, and so pure. My sister Cameron, honestly, nicest little being on the planet still. And I was like, get away from me. Mm-hmm. Oh, still so sweet. Bless. Yeah. Well, One I'm happy. Ancient aliens, new season is out. <laughs> they kid did not come to, they came to play. Did That's not why I haven't seen you. I know, honestly, to be honest, season 14, Ancient Aliens is on and popping at the Cribbo. And we watched Antarctica last night. It was wild. Mm. It's just nice now with the, the season with Ancient Aliens as it's becoming more, all the information and data is becoming more recent. Yeah. And what I love about it too is like, it, me and Justin talk about it maybe three times a week that the title for ancient aliens doesn't do the content justice. I know I was going to say it's just more investigative reporting about theories and topics and ideas that are going on within the scientific community that are not being explored on a broader scale within culture. So like they'll talk about the deep sea and these octopuses in the deep, deep sea that could actually change their DNA or these things, you know, another thing within the deep sea was this, it's like a, a jelly of sorts mm -hmm. and it cannot die. Like it, no matter what you cut it into the smallest piece, you try and kill it all these ways. It can manipulate its DNA to continue to live over and over time in many different ways and forms. And so it explores topics like that, not saying it's like an alien, but it's just saying related to all the different technologies that could be available outside of the, the earth. And they had Antarctica last night and it talked a lot about Antarctica as this like, place where there could be potentially alien portals or there could be ways to get into the center of the earth or all these different things. But there have been discoveries within Antarctica of these caverns and caves that exist that you can go into that are actually 70 degrees or 80 degrees mm. where these life forms live in this very warm temperature. So there's just very weird things that have happened or, you know, that continue to happen in Antarctica that like the scientific community has been talking about in some instances, but people don't really know about. Sometimes I get nervous when, cause I, I, you've introduced me to this and I love watching them too. It's like, I get nervous about like their safety, like people creating this content. Yep. I'm like, you know, if it becomes too mainstream, are they going to be like fucking hunted down and quietly killed. Like, honestly, like I just, it's because of the way, 
whether it's government, media, you know, whatever you want to call it, are controlling the type of things that are being broadcasted and um, consumed. It's just like, I'm so glad that they're creating content like this and doing that investigative reporting. But I'm also like, I hope enough people know about it so that if anything were to happen, like there would be a serious uprising instead of it I just know I think about we talk about that too Justin and I it's like I think it's getting so much information out there or being so visible that it would be obvious if it happened mm-hmm. you know that's what because there's a specific person in that community um, that I think about often is like his safety has been compromised he talks about it frequently and a lot of the people they're interviewing on the Antarctica show were from like US naval officers they were in the Navy they had been stationed there etc and they didn't want to be seen you know, yeah. they didn't want their faces to be seen. They wanted their voices to be changed to protect themselves because, you know, that's what you have to do. Like Bob Lazar from mm-hmm. Joe Rogan. And he was, Bob was in a an episode on season 14, I think, talking too about this certain, uh, it's not a molecular atom, but it's it's a sub, it's not a substance. What's like a, a mineral or like a- Oh yeah, it's, it, it's like a element one- 15. 15. Yes, talking about element 115 and yeah, you do, but then, you know, what is it, what is life worth living for if you're not standing up for the truth, you know? So, and that's me saying this as someone that hasn't been in that situation Mm -hmm. at all. So I don't know, but that's kind of sometimes what I think about. Totally. Wow. You know, so ancient aliens is back. Plug it. You can watch online too for free actually guys. You should get them as a sponsor. <laughs> I'm actually trying. You guys are, I know you guys are always like, where the fuck do you get these guests? But like in the best way possible, where do you get them? But I'm trying to get a bunch of ancient aliens people on. Mm-hmm. I know. I'm ready. You guys ready? I've, I keep work, I keep like figuring out, I'm like watching. I'm like, okay, they'd be good. They'd be good. They'd be good. Cause you know, you need to be a good storyteller, mm-hmm. but it's also too, like, where do we start? Cause they have so much information. So I think a lot about how my interview would change in that sort of situation and how I could, really bring out the best information and be as educated as possible. Totally. I want one on sacred geometry. You know, I want one on the pyramids. There's just so much. Billy Carson's amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just so much that we could do, but I'm really excited to like dig into that. Yeah. Let us know if you guys have anything that you want to further explore. Yeah. Anything that we haven't talked about. We would love that. Totally. What's up with you? Uh, I, my best friends were in town. My best friend, Maddie and his husband and Michael and Carlos, we were all hanging out in Palm Springs. My gay dads who like took me in when I first moved to LA. And then Maddie is my best friend since I was in sixth grade. So it was really nice to just, you know, just dance around in Palm Springs. It was really, really nice. I stayed by myself and then we went to the Ace Hotel. They stayed at the Ace Hotel and I would go there during the day. I mean, just the funniest scene, just the funniest scene I've ever seen to be honest, like four bachelorettes. And right now, I guess the trend like with bachelorettes is all the, the bridesmaids wear black bathing suits and then the brides wear white. That is standard across the board. If anyone's wondering, <laughs> cause like I didn't get it at first. I was like, why is everyone black? Like, and I was just like, what is the pattern here? And then I was like, oh, there's the bride, but they were having a blast. And we were just laying like little whales on the, the day bed. And we were next to the DJ who was not good at all for five hours, like was playing the most bizarre music I've never heard of in my life, which is fine. I was like new music, but this was like, it was a little dark. It was a little just off on planet fucking Pluto. And like the people who were like the, the DJ groupies were just freaking us out. And it was groupies. It was weird, but you would never think they were DJ groupies. It was like very bizarre. Right. But overall it was a really good time. It came at the right time. I like, 
so I've been getting a lot of sweet messages from people being like, oh my God, because I've talked briefly about that I've been dating someone. They're like, I'm so glad you're dating someone. And like, what? <laughs> Honestly, it's the kiss of death. <laughs> it's the kiss of death. <laughs> Talking about my it face. on the podcast. Yeah, but we, yeah, we're no longer dating, but everything, you know, it's just so funny, like being at this age. And I've been just thinking about this a lot where like, if this would have happened five years ago or a few years ago, I would be reacting totally differently. You know, I would be maybe uh, resentful or blaming that other person or blaming myself, actually maybe mainly blaming myself. What could I have done differently or whatever? But I mean, such a sweetheart. And it was just like not right and wrong timing and wrong, just not right. And I I was just, I came out of it being like, oh, I'm so proud of myself for like putting myself out there, one, keeping my heart open to, and just like being affectionate, showing love, just being present to what was happening and not thinking too far ahead. And yeah, I was just, I think what tripped him up was just thinking too far ahead and not knowing if that's something he's ready for. And that was, and that's totally valid too. You know, like it also taught me to respect where people are, you know, it just is what it is. And it, it sucks. Like I, it's almost like, it felt like I was, cause I was up and down all weekend, kind of like laughing, celebrating, and then like crying in the next moment. (laughs) You like see a hot guy. You're like, yeah, fuck him. I wanted this. <laughs> and then at the end of the night, you're like, oh my God, alone again. <laughs> Every night. Dude, I know it's the up and but down. But it almost feels, it, it's like- It's the craziest it's, thing. I'm in my own movie. So I'm like really enjoying being the star of my own movie mm. in those moments. Mm-hmm. I'm like, just so dramatic. Mm. I'm like, let me order breakfast by myself. <laughs> like, it's like, whatever. But um, yeah, I just, I was like, I think I was crying and being and feeling sad because, or I can't really describe it because it's not like I was like, I'm so sad. Like he hurt me. It was just like, it was like a morning of something that I put, put a lot into. And then I was like, then the tears felt like joyful for what's actually going to be something that is just so full and fulfilling and, and loving and that's coming whenever it is. But I just was like, it was this weird thing where I'm like, I'm happy, but I'm sad, but I'm really happy. (laughs) So I felt a little crazy. Well, but just to update you guys, because I'm beautiful. Everyone's so sweet. They always message. They're like, I know you're the token single girl. Oh, these. But um, yeah, it just, and the thing is like, I don't feel any bad things. Toward, you know what I mean? In the past I have. Yeah. So it's a nice feeling to just like kind of own what I put into it. I learned how to communicate better. You know, I told him exactly like when he expressed to me certain things, I was like, I expressed myself back in a very honest way, you know? And I wasn't just like appeasing him. Yeah. And it felt really good. I literally felt tightness in my throat and then it released. I was like, oh, this this is a thing, you know? And to keep doing that will be really healthy for me. I also um, went on hinge for 12 hours and then went off. Oh, shit. The energetics of it all. Damn. I was like, that's because I was like, oh, this really? is fun. Totally. Oh, I, oh, what's out there, baby? And then I got on, and all it was <laughs> a full body. Totally. It was a full body reaction of, I'm not supposed to be on here. Literally. Really. Oh, I swear. I like made it at night because I was just like, oh, whatever the fuck. And then I woke up in the morning. I was like, nope. 
Mm-mm. I didn't even give anyone a chance to like respond Mm-mm. back. Did you update your profile? Info? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's almost like when you, I have create, to, I cut my it's hair. It's almost like when you create your own, like what are those little avatar things that people send where it's like oh, a picture, yeah. it's like a dr- cartoon of themselves with totally. like a baseball hat on and they're like, get batter up that I they mean. send to like your parents. Bitly or <laughs> Jesus, how old am I? What? what are those things? Those little cartoon creatures? Oh, uh, bitly. No, Bit- a bitly is a Bit- short link for. Oh. <laughs> God damn. I know nothing. Cartoon creature. Gif- send. Dude, it, it's actually, it's actually freaking me out. There's been a lot of instances recently where I'm like. What's that word? That's an old person thing. <laughs> Honestly. Like that's, that's There's also actually, lack of oxygen in the studio right now. Oh my God, dude, I, I Googled <laughs> it bitmoji. Oh. Bit I Googled cartoon, and Justin, would, Justin loves my, my Googles. Cartoon creature you send via text and someone um, had a search on imore.com. How do you do the cartoon character with your text messages? <laughs> Some mom in the middle of Oklahoma literally wants to know the same thing as me. Holy well, another shit. thing I said today too was like an, another, during an interview was another old person thing. I was like, oh fuck, I'm officially like beca- saying old people stuff. Mm. I'm like, what's that thing where you got the cartoon character on the text and you send it to people? Uh. <laughs> I mean, that's going to creep up sooner than we think. Or the kids. Well, I mean, it already has with the shit f- that they're using, the words that they're using. I know. I need to be fresh. Chloe. Yeah, Chloe. Need more time with Chloe. I know. She needs to make it downloadable for us only. I know. And it's like all the <laughs> swaggy words. <laughs> She's like, on it. <laughs> she already has it done, actually. <laughs> Honestly, it's beautiful. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Okay. I love that so much. Okay. Okay. I mean, that's really all Jill I had to Blakeway? say. Yeah. I'm pumped. I'm pumped. Energy I, medicine. Energy medicine, baby. So we get um, books sent to us for people that want to be on the podcast, people that just want to send us their book, friends, et cetera. So the team, Jill's team sent us her book, Energy Medicine. I got a few copies, I think mm-hmm. uh, somewhere for you, but I actually got probably four mm-hmm. randomly. I don't know. I think, I don't know what that was, but so I was like, oh, there's something here. Like I want, I need to read this book. And I loved it. It was one of my favorite books. And I think I told her this on the interview, but it was one of my favorite books I've read in a long time. And it was really about the specifics behind understanding energy, how it works from a spiritual level, and then how it works from like a medical researched perspective. So I really found it interesting because when I'm often talking about energetics, you know, they have good energy, good vibes, like stay positive, that kind of thing. It really helps to put the languaging and data behind those conversations. So I'm able to speak more accurately to people that need that sort of languaging. Yeah. Yeah. And she's just awesome. It's incredible. Yeah. It's, and it's something that we can kind of describe on a very vague level, but it was, yeah, like you said, just it made it tangible and like also it's interesting to see what will happen in the next like 10, 20 years in the medical field, how they are incorporating more holistic treatments. And Jill refers to energy medicine, um, the term as the wide range of healing modalities used to diagnose and treat illness by manipulating energy. So the vital life force um, referred to as chi. And she is, you know, a acupuncturist and traditional Chinese medicine practitioner. So she knows her stuff and it's just so fascinating because why not incorporate, you know, Eastern and Western medicine together 
to heal our physical, emotional, and spiritual bodies. Yeah, she does. She's interested in and practices Reiki as well. So for me going through Reiki training, as you guys know, a lot of this information is interesting. So also to hear and learn about different stories about people that have healed themselves naturally through positive thought or through intention or through um, different energetic methods that may not be Western was really beautiful. So I think that to understand more of these Eastern modalities as it relates to healing is just awesome. And and she's a true, true delight. Her uh, book is really, really easy to read too. Yeah, it's kind of fu- funny. It's like conversational in ways and she's just like- yeah. So sweet. So thank you, Jill, for being on the podcast. And if you'd like to check out Energy Medicine, it's available on Amazon now. And if you love this episode and want to share it with people, please do. That makes our day. And if you're called to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, that helps us out so much getting guests like Jill on and so many more and just, you know, growing the community. Yeah. We're all about community and we have an ambassador program just based on that. Uh, So when Lindsay and I were traveling for tour last year and then this year, we noticed that these um, beautiful events were happening in the cities where we went with women in the community and outside of the community that, that were brought in. And we wanted to make sure that all women had access to these beautiful events and gatherings and meetups. So we created our ambassador program. So we have 80 plus ambassadors all over the world that work with you know Lindsay and I on a monthly basis through a call and through these other type of things. And they facilitate these beautiful events in their community based on all the pillars that Almost 30 stands for. So if you are interested in joining the ambassador program as an ambassador, uh, you can email community at almost30podcast.com. But if you're interested in joining one of the events that are happening in your local community, you can check out Facebook. We have a bunch of different um, ambassador programs listed there. And then on the Almost 30 Podcast website, we have all the cities listed as well. Yeah, we can't wait for you to be a part of the community. We're also on tour. So you can check out our tour dates and locations at almost30podcast.com slash tour. We're on the road for the rest of the year, baby. Yeah. So come see us. Can't wait. Ooh, on and popping. <laughs> so we have um, LA August for our podcast pro workshop. We have Nicole Lappin event, which is new. So if you love Nicole Lappin, you are interested in financial wellness, being a superwoman, which is her mm-hmm. new book. Come hang with us at the Riveter in September. We're going to Nashville. We have two events happening in Nashville. We have Ohio, Columbus. Uh, we have Philadelphia. We have Washington, D.C., Miami, three shows in New York, and then Chicago, Chicago Australia. So Sydney and Australia. Melbourne. You said Miami. And then we're ending with a live show in LA, LA. at the Dynasty Theater, at the Dynasty Typewriter at the Hayworth theater, which we're super pumped about. So gorge. So enjoy this episode. We will see you on the other side with a review. We love you all very, very much. You inspire us every day. And we mean that not to sound cheesy, but it's really true. So thank you. Enjoy. So we got shared your book by your team a few months ago and I we get a lot of books and I have read your entire book and I have dog-eared it and bookmarked it. And it is my favorite book I've read in a very, very long time. And um, I am no one to be excited about knowing it's a good book from, but it is so beautiful. And it is so... I just feel a connection to you actually just in the way that you write. And I really have been looking for a book that can help me describe energy 
in a scientific way, in a way that people will understand, in a way that I can understand and I can intellectualize. And I've been doing more work in the Reiki space and the energy space and just understanding it more through your teachings and your learnings and the science of the Eastern and Western throughout your book, Energy Medicine, is incredible. So I'm just so thankful that you wrote it and I'm so thankful that I got it, that I was able to read it. Thank you so much. That's the feedback I'm getting from people is that they were waiting for a book to explain this. And of course, I wrote it because I was trying to explain it to myself. I I was trying to explain me to me in some ways. I knew I was an effective acupuncturist. I don't think I'm particularly special. I think there are lots of effective acupuncturists out there. And I wondered, why does it work so well? And I started to ask the questions that I think a thoughtful practitioner asks, like how much is placebo and who's doing the healing? And does the patient heal in response to a prompt? And if they can heal in response to the prompt of acupuncture, can they heal in response to other prompts um, like placebos, in fact, but also hands-on healing and things like that? So I had lots of questions and I was thrilled when HarperCollins sent me off around the world to answer them. And I, as you know from the book, this is part memoir. It, I sort of dig deep into me, but also I talk to healers and scientists and all sorts of people and ask them, what what is the energy that heals us? And the answers I got, as you know, were very revealing. Yeah, it was almost like everybody that we um, or that I read in here was like, oh, I was like, oh, I'd love to... I mean, the people that you talked to were so in it. And so like, you have to be in this world to, on another level that I wouldn't even understand being in the health and wellness space to know these healers and people that you talked to. And I was just so blown away by them. And I do want to make it clear just for our listeners. So what stuck out to me the most and why this book is so important is because as energetic beings, as healers in our own right, if you are in the healing space as someone that you know says you're a Reiki master or a Reiki healer or an acupuncturist, or even just a person living in this world, as a spiritual person, I do find it hard to explain energy, to explain um, why it is that we can heal ourselves. We can be healed by others just by touch and outside of you know pharmaceuticals. So having what you wrote about in the book is super important. And there was so much takeaway from it. But I just wanted to make sure that that was very clear to our listeners, that that was a lot of what it was about. Yes. And uh, I wanted some concrete evidence too, because uh, our field becomes somewhat anecdotal if we're not careful. And I, you know, there are anecdotes in the book, but I wanted to understand the meaning of them. So I wanted to understand, you mentioned Reiki. And one of the interesting things about Reiki is that the frequency that comes out of Reiki practitioners' hands is measurable and it's an unusually low frequency. And one of the things I found in the book as I did my research, was that some of the best orthopedic hospitals in the world now put a low electrical frequency through broken bone because it heals the bone and soft tissue quicker. And interestingly, it is the same frequency that Reiki masters um, and Reiki practitioners emit from their hands. And I, I also looked at some research from Japan. As you know, I went to Japan for quite a long time for this book. But I looked some, at some research into Qigong masters, who are the Chinese medicine version of, uh, of Reiki masters in a way, uh, although it's a more contemplative uh, tradition. And they have fields that come out of their hands that are a thousand times bigger than the normally 
biggest field in the body, which is the heart. Um, they had their training has has meant that they can do that. And you know, the question I asked is, well, then what does it do? And I wandered around asking people uh, and trying to look for things that were measurable because I think that's something that people are interested in. The anecdotes are fun and the stories in my book, I had so much fun telling them, but I wanted some concrete evidence. And I think the combination is what was, uh, you know, was my aim. I completely agree. And the concrete evidence definitely helps in, you know, while we believe it wholeheartedly and we kind of are in a community where people believe it, but to explain it to people outside, it always is so helpful to have that evidence and kind of the science behind it. Before we dig in, because there's so much to dig into here, I'd love to know how and why you got into this work. You know, I'm always interested in how people find alternative forms of medicine. A lot of people use it as a last resort um, because they think it's too weird and they just lean on you know, prescription drugs and what their medical doctors are saying, which is great. And, and we definitely support that. But I'm also wondering why people don't do it sooner and in conjunction with you know, their, their general doctor and all of that. So I'd love to know your story and how you got into this work. Well, I got into being an acupuncturist the way a lot of acupuncturists of my generation did. I've done this for 25 years. So um, uh, I had acupuncture and was amazed that it worked. And I tell that story in the book that I I had a series of chronic health complaints and acupuncture is particularly good actually for dealing with those. And um, someone in a health food store recommended I see an acupuncturist and I was kind of blown away. And that set me on my path to doing a master's in traditional Chinese medicine and then eventually a a doctorate. But in the book, I also described that I was always an intuitive kind of person and that I thought that came from my childhood, that I had a somewhat frightening childhood. And in the book, I say that... um, because I met a lot of wounded healers along the way, that I think there is a connection that that people who were traumatized during their childhood nurture a sense of premonition that eventually becomes their intuition. And I uh, met a woman, I mentioned her in the book, who teaches a lot of the psychics out on Long Island. I didn't look at psychic phenomena much in this book, but um, uh, she's, she's a big teacher of psychics. And she told me that most of the people who were really good at um, channeling had some kind of childhood trauma, which I think is is interesting. So I was probably an empathic, sensitive person to start with, um, but I really found myself in Chinese medical school because it is this is it's it's an interesting academic um, study. Uh, it's it's the sort of very academic end of energy medicine, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a whole different frame of reference. And so you learn a, a, another culture's frame of reference. And I said in the book that somewhere in the middle of my studies, as a, because as an acupuncture student, you go backwards and forwards. You learn physiology and toxicology and biophysics and chemistry and anatomy with cadaver and things that would be recognizable to a Western medical student. And then you, you, you're a bit like you're at Hogwarts all of a sudden and you're doing <laughs> acupuncture point location and <laughs> herbal formulas and things like that. And I realized that I was struggling with something that science has struggled with, which is the relationship between energy and matter. And that um, 
there was a time when philosophy and science and uh, healing and medicine were all intertwined. And then Western medicine went off on its own path um, in some ways and became rather more mechanistic. But most ancient cultures have a, a concept of the energy that enlivens us. They call it, you know, pneuma in Greece or the breath in the Judeo-Christian tradition or prana in Ayurveda or chi in Chinese medicine. Uh, and um, we are living energetic beings. And in the book, I, I go on, a, as you know, I interview physicists and I start to look at how we are energy condensed and why we have neglected that part of our being um, in, uh, in favor of treating the matter endlessly, the, the tissue and the sinew and the bone and the organs. And I'm a firm believer in integrative partnerships at the Innova Center where I work. We work with doctors all the time. Um, but we're dealing with the slightly more energetic part of the human being, the part that's vital and alive. And what that usually means is that Chinese medicine is really good at sorting out where one system impacts another system. So Western medicine tends to focus on a system yeah. like the reproductive system. I, 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 my first book is called Making Babies, so I have a very strong fertility specialty. Whereas I, as a practitioner of Chinese medicine, would look at the whole person and how differences, how the digestive system impacts the reproductive system, how the cardiovascular system impacts the reproductive system. And really what I'm looking at at that point is the body's intelligence. And I sometimes sum up chi, I do it in the book here and there, as the ways in which your body is intelligent. Um, and I think that's sort of where I, I got. So I'm I'm not someone who is um, you know alternative and exclusionary. I'm complementary and inclusionary. <laughs> I think we can get the best of both worlds um, uh, if if we all put our egos out of the way and work together. That's beautiful. And there was something you were talking about, and I know you talked about this in the book, but with trauma and people's ability to to channel and read. And I'm wondering if, you know, there's two parts of that. I think about someone that's dealt with trauma and they have to develop this ability to read people because it's their way to predict patterns, you know, patterns of pain, patterns of things that are making them uncomfortable or that are, you know, harming them. So it's a protective mechanism in that sense. But then there's also the sense of the ability to be out of your body and the getting out of your body when you're in trauma. So whether you're being abused uh, mentally, physically, emotionally, sexually, you are going to uh, leave your body at times. And I wonder if that body is able to, or your spiritual body, once you've left your physical body, is able to go into the consciousness field more easily to tap into what else could be happening with others' energetic fields rather than just staying you know, most people as they do stay in like the physical body. I think that's true. I didn't write about this in the book because when you write memoir, you don't, or a book like this, you don't want it all to be me, me, me. Yeah. <laughs> so you, I, I pick my way through memoir, but I used to leave my body as a child. So I had a very early experience of being non-local. And when I say that, the most surprising people tell me the same thing. And in the book, I looked at near-death experiences. Yeah. My mother had a near-death experience and ways in which our consciousness is bigger than our body. And the greatest example of it I saw was in Japan. And it was sort of interesting because this book wrote me rather than I wrote it. The path opened 
up in front of me. I didn't necessarily know who I was going to interview. I've been steeped in this world for a long time, so I had a rough idea. But I didn't know where I was going, and I didn't know I was going to Japan. And um, a professor at San Francisco State, a man called Dr. Pepper, um, had done some physiological testing on healers in Japan. And one of them was an 80-year-old yogi who had been Mr. Japan in 1979. He'd lifted weights and then decided to focus on his insides rather than his outsides and became a highly developed yogi. Um, and he runs a, a school in uh, Fukuoka, which is a province on an island off the south coast of Japan. So my husband and I wandered off to see him. And he was a most surprising man. He was extraordinarily disciplined, um, as you would imagine a bodybuilder to be. Um, of, uh, he taught meditation to um, all sorts of, he was quite famous as a meditation teacher in Japan, and uh, uh, as well as a bodybuilder. But he um, he was he was able to expand his consciousness is the only way I can explain it. And in the book I describe, I met him, he threw a party my first night in Fukuoka and Noah, my husband and I went along and he knew nothing about me at all. And he started to tell me about my childhood. And at the time, you know, he's Japanese and I'm British. So we were like being extremely polite. We were all culturally <laughs> in, <laughs> being polite. So I didn't ask him. I thought, well, I'm sure I'll find out at some point how he does this. Um, but I also saw him put the newspaper on his head and then read it uh, with it on the top of his head no way. Uh, by, by leaving his body. And he gave me one of the best psychic readings I've ever had, which I didn't necessarily talk about much in the book because I was focusing on his healing. But as a healer, whatever that ability to expand his consciousness was, it gave him uh, a profound insight and his patients would come and they would just knock on the door. I was hanging out with them at his clinic. Someone would knock on the door and he'd say, oh, I have to go. And I would um, watch. And he put them on a tatami mat on the floor. And then he would start to sing in tones that were very mesmerizing. And the patient would immediately go to sleep, like as if they were in a trance. It was uh, invariably, they would just shut their eyes and they'd be out. And then he would hand them a, um, a clipboard with paper on and they would write what was wrong with them. Uh, with their eyes shut. It was wow. the most extraordinary mm -hmm. thing I've ever seen. And then he would do hands-on healing um, based on that. So he was collaborating. In a way, he was getting their egos out of the way so that his spirit could collaborate with their spirit, I think. Um, and um, he was profoundly gifted. And uh, at one point I said to him, Sensei, <laughs> I called him Master because he was extraordinarily gifted. And I said, I'd love to come back and study with you. And he's 80. And he said to me, oh, don't worry, you have plenty of time. I'm going to live till I'm 110. And in a weird way, I believed him. I was like, okay, I'll see you then. Well, then I'll get this book written, I'll go on book tour, and then I'll come back. Wasn't wow. his voice really bad? Like, wasn't it very, when he dissonant? sang, it was very dissonant? No, it was, yeah. it was almost pain. It wasn't, it wasn't enjoyable. Right. So, yeah, no, it wasn't soothing, which is why it sort of bit shocked me that the patients went to sleep. <laughs> um, but there was something about it that was about vibration and um, connection. Yeah. Uh, that wasn't really about soothing. It wasn't a lullaby. It was a vibratory connection. 
connection between him and the patient. It's how he started his connection, which in a lot of ancient cultures is true. You know, the, uh, and actually in Judeo-Christian culture too, um, you know, chanting and um, vocalizing to get into a spiritual state is uh, is well known. And he was doing a version of that, but it was how he created connection. And then that connection put the patients to sleep, even though I was like startled by all these noises. <laughs> You mentioned those patients would write down what was wrong with them. So I'd love to talk about, you know, our ability to self-heal and what's stopping us from self-healing and how, you know, are there practices that we could be doing every day to get more in tune with that ability? Yes. I will at Towards the end of the book, when I get back from Japan, um, I tell the story of Madhu Anziani, who is um, in California, like you are. And when Madhu was 23, he fell out of a dorm room window and broke his neck. And he had a very serious spinal cord injury. It was 99% severed. And he was told mm-hmm. um, that he would um, he needed to accept that he was going to be a tetraplegic for the rest of his life. And he said to me, Jill, I, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, Jill, I wasn't stupid. I knew that that was a distinct possibility that I would be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. But I never allowed it to permeate my being. And I focused on feeling joy. And I thought that was remarkable considering how young he was at the time. He was only a 23-year-old college student. But he had been a student of Dr. Pepper at San Francisco State University. And he had witnessed these Japanese healers when they were testing them. So he had some sense that people could heal in remarkable ways and he'd seen it. So he had hope. And um, what Madhu did was he lay in his hospital bed and he made a sound, again, sound. And he felt it throughout his body, even though he was paralyzed. And two things struck me about that. One, it's quite hard to make a, a sound when you have a, um, a spinal cord injury because your diaphragm doesn't move easily. Um, so it took effort. And two, he had the common sense to realize that if he could feel it in the body, he could no longer feel anymore. He had some nervous system left. So he started to tone and people taught him mantras. And in the book, we talk about the power of different mantras and what they do to the brain. And someone bought him a prayer wheel and his dad would hold him up and hold his hand so that he could move the prayer wheel while um, uh, um, reciting his mantras. And at one point, a nurse said to him, you have to stop all this, Madhu, because, um, you know, you need to focus on being the the happiest tetraplegic you can be rather than um, uh, having this false hope. And he told her, I'm going to walk out of here. And he did three months later. And the reason I love that story is that he didn't do it alone. Um, he needed Western medicine. As I said, it focuses on matter. It focuses on tissue and bone and sinew. He had long operations at UCSF, which is one of the best neurological centers in the world. Um, he had occupational therapy and physical therapy. He had a Reiki master. He had the love of his family. But there is no doubt, and I hope I got this across in the book, that that Madhu played a really significant role in his own healing. And there were two things that stood out. One, he created vibration a healing vibration. And two, he allowed himself to feel joy in a very dire situation and he maintained belief in his body's ability to heal. And I think that's what we learned from that story and and why I enjoyed telling it. I devoted almost a whole chapter called You the Healer to that story because I thought it was really significant Mm. 
because of the way he healed himself with vibration. Yeah. And a re- um, just side note, we did ayahuasca recently. And in my one of my ceremonies, that was like the main message was that my singing or the tones, the humming was part of how I would heal myself in any situation. And I just, I feel that so much, just like any time that I need to self-soothe and it doesn't have to be like a big illness, but there is something to that familiar vibration that makes your body feel more at peace and at home rather than out of control. Well, as you know, when you do ayahuasca, the ikaros are extraordinarily important. Yes. And um, uh, uh, the, the ikaros, for people listening at home, are the songs, traditional shamanic songs um, uh, that are quite otherworldly. Uh, and they have different songs for different things. I was once doing ayahuasca and was violently um, sick, which happens sometimes during mm-hmm. ayahuasca. And um, I noticed that the shaman kept bursting into a different song whenever I vomited. And the next day I said, do you have a, a, a vomiting song? <laughs> she, she said, oh, yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> I do. I have a birthing song. And I was like, I thought so. I could just tell every time I throw up in a bucket, you changed your song. Uh, <laughs> but, but again, the Icaros are partly to hold your attention as you know, so that you don't wander off. Um, but they're also ah. vibrationary um, and um, a, a really important part of the ceremony. Yes. So with chanting, you know, when someone is chanting alone or in a group, the the takeaway from that is the importance of the vibration. And then when done in a group, it creates a greater vibrational wave than alone. Yes, I think so. But groups are also very interesting. Um, uh, if you remember when I, uh, in the book, in chapter two, when I look at the science of connection, yeah. one of the things I looked at was some really interesting research from Princeton University, uh, the engineering department. And uh, Dr. Robert Jean, who I was lucky enough to meet, he died subsequently while I was writing this book. He was very elderly at the time, but he was the dean of engineering at Princeton. And he had a grad student, a female female grad student who um, wondered if she could create a machine that could be moved by the human mind, that could be changed by the human mind. And I don't think Dr. Jean thought for a minute she was going to pull this off, to be honest. But he <laughs> thought it was a nice little grad school project for her and she would have, you know, it's an interesting engineering project to try and engineer that. But sure enough, she did. She created um, what's called the uh, REG, the Random Event Generator, which is a machine that spits out random numbers thanks to de- decaying atomic material that become less random when we focus on it. And what they found Mm. at Princeton, and they studied these REGs a lot, they they developed more and more sophisticated versions of them, is that when we all look in the same direction, that's when it has the most powerful effect. So one person having um, a a deep heartfelt intention um, affects the machine, but lots of people really affect the machine. And they took these uh, portable versions of the REGs to everything from the Trump inaugural to yoga retreats to churches <laughs> all over the place and one of the things they found was that um, when we connect through compassion we make the strongest connection and love um, and so yoga retreats and churches and um, religious services and meaningful um, shared experiences like that but um, unfortunately when we connect through fear we also affect the machine 
So if we're affecting the machine, we're affecting reality. We're affecting matter with our minds. Um, and um, as you know, fear contracts and love expands. And as we, uh, you know, if we get collectively fearful, we start to contract our world. We're seeing it sort of politically now as people are more fearful. Um, my own country, Britain, and actually this country are contracting on the world stage. Um, uh, and I think that's energetic as much as anything, although it's, you know, caused by action. Um, so I, uh, their research fascinated me, those those guys at the engineering department of Princeton, because I think they stumbled on something really important um without um you know without intending to and that is that we can measure when we connect mm. i'd love to um i'd love to talk about oh can i can yeah. I say something about that really fast yeah. and it's interesting on that point with the can you know the expansiveness of love and the contraction of fear and looking at those as like the basis of our entire universe you know, and so much of the life that we live now, if we're looking in the media, it's meant to have that fear, that contraction where you're scared to leave your house, you're scared to connect with others, you're scared to trust people, you're scared to trust other cultures, trust other types of people. And then the expansiveness of love in nature, in um, true meaningful relationships and whatever, it's that fearless type of love that is the expansiveness of our universe that really is like the most important thing we could know i think so i think i think so when i got to the end of the book i um asked everybody you know what is the energy that heals us and there is a man in the book in chapter four um and we'll probably talk about it a little bit more but he was um dr bill bankston at city university and he was the most granular lab-based scientist i talked to he uh, he did uh, research on mice in the labs uh, into energy healing and so I, when I asked him, I expected um, Dr. Bankston to give me an answer that involved particle and wave and frequency and lots of things I would have to translate for, for, for readers. Um, and instead, he said, it's love, Jill. Um, it's love. Uh, uh, healing energy is love. And I thought it was interesting that the most sort of hardline scientists that I looked at for this book uh, came to the same conclusion that we, we all had. And for my own part, in the in the treatment room, as you know from the book, I, I, I submitted my body to science at one point, and I had an EEG of my brain and an EKG of my heart done while I was treating patients to see what happened inside of me. And what happens is that somehow I had taught myself, and again, I don't think I'm particularly special. I think I, you know I teach you how to do this in the book. I reverse engineered it from for readers of the book. It's not hard to do, but I had taught myself to put my heart and my brain into frequency with each other so that they resonated at the same frequency. And then interestingly, the patient's heart goes into the same frequency as mine. Um, uh, and that, I think, is where the magic happens. I think that's when information gets transferred from me to the patient. And I don't think I send it. I think they take it. I just um, become a conduit by resonating from my heart. It's, it's a very sort of yoga concept in some ways. And I do it by controlling my breath. And then my heart and my brain resonate. And my heart opens up. And the patient's heart goes into the same frequency as mine, thanks to something called mirror neurons. Um, they start to mirror me. And when we're all in the same frequency, it would appear that that is when information gets passed and they take the healing information they need through me mm. rather than from me, I think. Is that when you do... So to get into that state, this is something I've been thinking about a lot. 
is is that when you do the flipping of the imagery in your life that makes you feel love and then you're able to get on that frequency that matches your thought process of that imagery of you know your husband or your partner or you know a time in your life where you loved and then you're able to more easily match the brain and the heart frequency no um for me it's just a pure breathing exercise um where i breathe in a way that increases heart rate variability mediates the relationship between my parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system via the vagus nerve um and i had just done that um uh, automatically i'd learned to do that i think in the book i explained that i loved my patients very much you know yeah. i cared about them and i wanted to help them and i think that need to help them that wish that deep longing to really help people um meant that i had taught myself um that but flashing images does come up in the book mm-hmm. because that is the technique that bill bangston taught his students um uh, and this was this professor at city university who learned uh, a strange um te- uh, energy healing technique from a psychic healer and he decided to test it in the lab and they took mice that had been specially bred to have cancer poor mice and I'm, I'm they I'm so sick of the mice testing it's insane yeah. i just feel it's it is that's how pharmaceuticals are tested I know. so um in order to sort of level that pain field and look at it, uh, if this is curative he went in the same direction as pharmaceuticals attested but i agree that this is i mean these mice had a happy ending as it turns out but it's it's still it's still sad but these mice especially bred to ha- have cancer they get given cancer and they reliably die on day 27 and bill could teach even the most skeptical of his students to keep them alive indefinitely and the reason i say they had a happy ending is because when they reinjected them with cancer they couldn't get it so something about the energy technique wow. had made change their immune systems wow. and made them immune to cancer so they actually did these particular mice got a benefit from it which i don't think happens often all the I have no idea what happened to them after the testing so I don't know um but um uh, it, I thought that was really interesting bill was shocked and what's important about that research is that it is replicable good science to a certain extent should be replicable you know it, there is some value in studying a special someone somewhere um that nobody else can see but not that much you know it's it's better if we learn things that we can then all do that help people and um bill could teach anybody to do this technique and it involved flashing images but they weren't images of love they were ego gratifying images uh. things that you that are really quite low level and not very noble like i don't know uh, what people mine had a beach house on it but <laughs> um, people flash images of things that they think would be lovely um and um what it seems to do is it does two things it puts them into the future and it also uh, distracts their ego so that they can be a conduit Uh, and so bill had um, arrived at something different to me i emptied my head in order to be a conduit and um he was filling his students heads with <laughs> in order to get them out of the way um so that they could be a, a, a conduit so um but they they've done this the, these studies at city university oh in new york over and over and over again on thousands of mice now and invariably the mice recover mm, wow. wow yeah 
I'd love to know what's happening, just speaking from my own experience, but I'm sure our listeners can relate. But um, very simply, like if someone walks into a room and their energy is a certain way, I tend to take on the energy. Whether I show it or not doesn't really matter, but I do feel their energy and tend to let it in. So I'm wondering what is happening there. And are there ways in which, you know, I don't want to completely block that energy, but ways in which we can metabolize it that won't dampen our own existing energy? I think it's a really good question. And we do, this is part going back to Princeton and the REGs, we're all connected. And so we are all in silent collaboration with each other in some ways. Mm. And uh, we know if there's been an argument in a room, even if it's not still going on, as we walk in, we can feel it. Um, We pick up each other energetically and Princeton designed, uh, the engineering department designed a machine that could measure that in some ways. Um, But I often get asked about protection and protection comes from fear in some ways. So I I like to, to approach this a different way. So rather than rituals of protection, which I think uh, are somewhat fear-based, I like to flood myself with my own higher power and my own light source energy and then push it outwards. Mm -hmm. So I give these exercises in the book, but I ground myself before I treat a patient. And I do that with my mind and I send a great grounding cord down into the center of the earth. And I do that um, very consciously and I start to feel heavier. I also ground the patient. I don't necessarily tell them. I just put put a grounding cord down for them too. And then I flood myself with my own higher power, my own light. Um, And I bring it in through my crown chakra and I flood my body and I push it out a little bit outside the parameter of my body. And that protects me. I don't need um, some complicated ritual um, to protect me if I do that because I'm I'm full of me, my own um, healing, my own higher power, my own spiritual light, my own connection to source energy, and and I believe very definitely having written this book, that source energy flows through all of us. Uh, you know that there is a source. You could call it God. You could call it. You know, I have a whole chapter called. What's God got to do with it? But there is a there is a, a shared source of energy that comes through us all, and all we have to do is reconnect to source. And we're wise, and we're protected, and um, we also have to stay on the ground a little bit. And that's that's it. It's, it really is that simple. I think. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I want to talk about fascia. So I really loved the way that you described and the way I was able to understand fascia. The one part I really loved was understanding that fascia is everywhere in the body, but also that it is a conduit for electrical energy or key. And as it travels through our bodies, there are pathways of fascia that allowed the energy to go to and from. So it's really these beautiful energy channels. But I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about what your findings were as it relates to fascia. Well, fascia is very interesting. It is it is electroconductive uh, and that's due to its collagen content. It has a high collagen content and collagen has a high water content. That's why we need collagen for our skin oh, to look. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so that, and as we know, water conducts electricity. Um, that's why you don't stand in a puddle if you're in danger of getting an electric shock. So fascia is very conductive and it goes everywhere. And I started, uh, as you know, in the book, in the chapter on acupuncture, looking at some research from the University of Vermont 
um, a, a woman called Dr. Helen Langevin uh, in the medical school there who had looked at acupuncture points and found that they were more electrically conductive. They had a greater pull force than other points in the body. And that was because, and she did these experiments again on animals, unfortunately, but they were, uh, it was rat abdominal wall. But um, uh, when the needle gets twisted, as we do in an acupuncture treatment, uh, the connective tissue starts to um, uh, go around it like spaghetti on a fork, really. It twirls around the needle and it stays twirled for the duration of a treatment, an acupuncture treatment, until it's pulled out and it becomes more electroconductive. And then the question I asked myself was, well, yes, but how does that signal go deep into the body? And the answer, I believe, is fascia. I talked to a surgeon in London who said that in his training, he was told, you know, if he could avoid cutting the fascia, he should. Bad things happen when you cut the fascia. And so they use the fascial planes as guides. Uh, and they are the way that the body compartmentalizes itself in some ways. And they're highly electroconductive. And interestingly, if you put a map of the fascial planes and you overlay a map of the traditional Chinese acupuncture meridians, they are in the same place. Mm. Um, and so I think one explanation for the meridians may well be the fascia. Hmm. Beautiful. With the fascia, do you think that that has involvement in when we, when people get sick because of emotional trauma? Sorry, I'm trying to trying to articulate yeah. without making it a blanket statement. I don't mean that every sickness is caused by emotional trauma. However, I do believe there's some connection. So is the fascia kind of the communication line that creates that sickness or does not create the sickness? I think in part... Um, and it may well be the root out. One of the things that I looked at in this book was, um, uh, you know, there's a concept in traditional Chinese medicine that's been a concept for thousands of years that when qi doesn't flow, um, uh, we get sick, yeah, or we experience pain. And I do think that um, uh, emotional trauma uh, can also create that kind of stagnation. And that's part of Chinese medicine that, you know, they would say that you, obviously you can have a trauma like a, um, you know, you can have an accident and an injury and that creates stagnation of qi. But you can also have emotional injury creating stagnation of qi. And I interviewed a, a spiritual teacher called uh, Kieran Trace in the chapter on God. And she could actually see pain bodies is what she called them, but areas of stuck qi uh, where uh, how she described it was, you know, if we have an experience we can't make sense of or we can't process, we put it somewhere in our body and then we don't go back to it. And I tell this story in the book, but I, mm. I regularly treat a patient and I pop in an acupuncture needle and they suddenly out of nowhere start to cry and they say, Joe, I don't know why I'm crying. And I, I say, I think, you know, memory is cellular. And there's evidence that shows that now, and I, mm. I footnote it in the book. And I think I just tap into an area they haven't gone back to. So what that has to do with fascia is I think the acupuncture signal um, travels deep into the body through the fascia. And so it's a, it's a way of um, uh, unblocking these pain bodies, these areas of stuck tissue that over time become more and more dense uh, and less available as we, as we don't revisit them energetically. Beautiful. 
And one of the most powerful parts of the book that I found was um, when you talk a lot about uh, emotions, and this is almost at the end, and you say emotions are neuroscientific emotions as neuroscientific research has shown operate at a much higher speed than thoughts because they most often bypass the mind's linear reasoning process. As such, negative emotion, emotions such as fear and anxiety can make the heartbeat more erratic, signaling the body that the nervous system is out of sync and initiating a cascade of 1400 biochemical changes that have array of effects on the body. And the part about really having those emotions bypass the linear thought process makes so much sense. Mm. And especially as um, women, I think that the emotional capacity is higher. So therefore, the emotional or the ability for emotions to bypass the linear thought process, which men a lot of times are more linear. Um, So it might just be that their emotional thought processes are different. But I really love the way you explained emotions. It made so much sense to me. Well, thank you. It makes sense to me too. And as someone who treats both men and women, um, obviously people are, are just people, but people process emotions yeah. in different ways. And I think sometimes um, the fact that our emotions are accessible to us is actually healthier than repressing them. And I think, I, you know, sometimes when I'm treating men, I um, am really conscious of the pressure on them to not express their emotions and where they have to put them in their body in order to do that. I treat a lot of somatic illness in men, you know, nervous tummies and um, bad backs and things that, that really comes from not having a support system where they can um, uh, express um, deep emotional pain. We yeah. get to call our girlfriends and howl and, um, <laughs> and express it. And, uh, you know, women tend to support each other uh, in that way. But I think a lot of men don't feel like they have that permission. Obviously, I'm talking very generally and there are exceptions all, all over that statement. But uh, so, so, yes, uh, I think stuck emotions are what cause you a problem. But negative emotions um, uh, speedily affect the body. And the important thing isn't to hermetically seal yourself against stress or negativity, you know, things happen, but to develop um, ways of getting back into balance quickly. Um, And um, often that's through the breath. And uh, in chapter two, where I talk about the science of connectivity, I interviewed a biofeedback psychologist who talks about heart rate variability. And we always think that a healthy heart is sort of regular, but actually a healthy heart is variable. And the more uh, ability to be variable, the healthier the heart. And that variability is used so that when you go into fight or flight, you don't stay in fight or flight for the rest of the day, which happens. We carry our stress with us. When you've ha- dealt with whatever the small fire was that you you put out, uh, hopefully small fire, um, you know, uh, the ability to go back um, into um, a, a, a tranquil state or feeling safe depends on heart rate variability. Um, and so training yourself through breathing exercises um, is is the way to go. I became a much deeper proponent of breath work having worked on this book than I was before. I think I dismissed it a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then I talked to the experts and I realized, oh, <laughs> we're controlling a lot through our breath. Yes. And it's important. Mm. Um, I'd love to touch on... I'm just through my curiosity with the energetics of food 
and herbs um, and how it affects our body physically and energetically. Um, Krista's vegan. I'm mainly plant-based, but I do eat um, like wild fish, but I'm just kind of curious about like what you've found in your research and just in your experience. Well, in Chinese medicine, um, all food has different energetic properties and um, that's true for herbs too. And that's why incidentally we use whole herbs um, as practitioners and not synthesized extracts of, you know, um, uh, the whole herb has an energy all of its own and the energetic property of it is is as important as the chemical constituents um, to us as herbalists. But uh, food also has energy and um, uh, I, it loses that energy when it gets processed or um, if it's an animal product when it, and when it is in pain or distressed, it affects its energy. Um, so uh, we, in Chinese medicine, we would say that you know, leafy greens in the summer take in the energy of the sun and as does corn, say, but if it gets extruded into a cornflake, <laughs> I don't quite know how they make cornflakes, but presumably <laughs> they press them and <laughs> grind <laughs> and extrude. Um, it, it loses um, uh, the energy it took from the sun. Root vegetables bring their energy up from the earth, which is why they're full of minerals, which is why we eat them in the fall to store up for, for winter. And if they get heavily processed, uh, they lose their mineral content, as you know, um, and also um, their sort of energy. And in, in Chinese medicine, as well as in things like macrobiotics, um, different foods have different energies. Um, so you can he- eat different foods to heal different things. So some of them are warming, some of them are expansive, some of them are contracting. And it's often quite obvious, like a lemon astringes and contracts, which you know, if you suck on a lemon, everything goes. So, um, <laughs> you know, that would be a good thing to eat if you need to contain a little bit or hold up. Um, and um, some warming grains, you can feel it as you have grains for breakfast. They are expansive, yeah? So they're somewhat stress relieving. So if you feel like a pressure mm-hmm. cooker, a bowl of warming grains um, will feel expansive and nourishing. Um, and uh, we lose a lot of that when we process our foods. And it, it is this is also an animal welfare point at this point because uh, animals that have lived in pain and fear mm. um, are also energetically um, transmitting that pain and fear. So um, it, you're absolutely right to have wild fish if you're going to have you know, animal or um, fish protein. I do a little bit of animal products too, um, but I, um, I, I'm very concerned with how the animal lived. I, we have a house in upstate New York, so we tend to know our farmers and um, we know who are humane. I used to do a podcast called Grow, Cook, Heal for CBS, oh. um, which is still out there where I talk to people who grow our food and produce our food. And then I cooked with people in their kitchen and asked them to cook things that were nourishing. And then we did a healing segment at the end of every show. I did that every week for a year. Um, And so it gave me a chance to get to know all my local farmers and know who I should be buying uh, meat from and who treats their sheep really well. I interviewed a shepherdess on that um, show, (laughs) uh, an English shepherdess. 
and uh, she was lovely. And I said to her, this may sound like a really stupid question because, you know, what do you ask a shepherdess? Um, this may <laughs> sound like a really stupid question, but, um, uh, you know, do you... Uh, do you uh, know these sheep individually or are they just a flock to you? And she was like, oh, no, no, I know them very well. I know their mothers. I know their struggles. Oh. I know their personalities. <laughs> and it was just so sweet. And then she started to tell me about different sheep. That one had a horrible time in labor. Mm. I was with her all night. <laughs> Except oh. who she was so much pain but we got through it together and things like that. And I thought, well, I would always, you know, if I was going to shop anywhere, I would shop here. As, <laughs> as a shepherdess would, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if a shepherd would know that, but yeah. shepherdess for life. Yeah, <laughs> it was just such a sweet thing. And I, I, I thought I'd asked a really stupid question. <laughs> I wonder where shepherds meet shepherdesses online. (laughs) They need like a dating app for shepherds and shepherdesses. Um, She had met a sheep farmer and come. she was a shepherdess from England and she had met a sheep farmer in upstate New York and come on over here. So that's kind of cool. (laughs) That's amazing. Um, I'd love to, as a last thing from me, just for our audience, um, if they wanted to do a little self-healing, I know you have uh, great practices in the book, but maybe a brief little self-healing that they could do at the end of their day. I would love for you to share that with them. I think the grounding and protecting we talked about um, helps everyone. So if at the end of the day, by the time you've picked up all sorts of people's energy and you your shoulders are up by your ears if you're not careful, um, if you focus on sending a nice big old anchor chain right into the core of the earth and imagine it wrapping around the molten core of the earth and let it make you feel heavy and then start to breathe regularly five breaths a minute is sort of optimal, which is um, breathe in for six, out for six. Um, And with that regular breathing, start as you inhale, pulling your beautiful light, your beautiful, beautiful light, your source energy through your body, all the way through this grounded body, slowly down through your chest and through your legs and right down to your feet. And then sit there, grounded on the earth, connected to source, and ask the questions you need to ask. You'll be amazed how wise you are connected to source. I even do that when I lose my keys. (laughs) I ground, fill myself with my own energy and ask, where are my keys? And I can assure you that I find them. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I need to give that to my boyfriend. He loses every single thing in the house. I'll tell him to connect to source and no me. Like yeah, no, no more excuse. I don't want to do it. Ask, you will be told. Love that. <laughs> um, last question for me: From all the research that you've done for the book, in particular, I know you had a lot of experience prior to the book, but during that time you were you were doing research for the book. What was something that you learned or experienced that just changed your life? Towards the end of the book, I I met a monk called Hiroyuki Abe, and I tell his story in the book. He was a very talented healer in Kobe, Japan, and he um, allowed me to watch him 
work. And I was very impressed by his energy, which was very strong, like palpably strong. And he offered to open my chakras and I took it really lightly. <laughs> I realized like a Westerner would. I was like, sure, open my chakras. And he, uh, I shut my eyes and I have video of this. If we ever meet, I'll show you. I have video on my phone of this. <laughs> <laughs> if we meet in person. But um, I could feel him pulling. I could feel him inside my body, actually. And I began to think, oh, this is a bigger deal than I thought. <laughs> and I was in a classroom full of his students um, who were blown away that he'd offered to do this because it was like a big deal. And um, when I opened my eyes, all I could see was light. I could see his beautiful students and their beautiful, beautiful light. And I never went back completely to seeing the world the same way again. I realized we're light. In the book, I started to talk about biophotons. We have light in every cell that's measurable. And, and interestingly, cancer cells lose their light, um, uh, which is, I think, very significant. But we are, we are light. We are energy. We are wave. We are a frequency. Um, uh, and we are here having a spiritual ex uh, experience while being physical. And I believe we're here to experience duality. And so we rail against experiencing duality, but it's kind of why we're here. And we're having this physical experience, but it's not all, all all that we are. We're not our bodies. We're not even our minds. We're light. And that light is love. And um, that changed my life, actually, and changed my relationship with everything and everyone. And I've done this book tour with extraordinary calm. My husband says, you're the calm uh, in the storm, Jill, because I'm doing a lot of prayers. <laughs> and it's because I'm not preparing. I'm talking from my heart. I'm trusting source. I say a prayer before I came on to talk to you, that I would tell you what would affect people in a way that opens their hearts. And um, because I'm not ever prepared, <laughs> I don't have to work quite so hard. I just show up mm -hmm. and I allow source to speak through me in some ways. And um, I shine my light and appreciate everybody else's. And that has been a life-changing thing. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Where can our listeners connect with you? Where can they pick up the book? Well, you can get the book everywhere at the moment. It's in all good bookstores. And I'm a big proponent of supporting your local independent bookstore. And uh, But it's also online. Um, so the, the book is called Energy Medicine, The Science and Mystery of Healing. It's published by HarperCollins. And I'm Jill Blakeway. And you can find me at my practice, yanovacenter.com, um, Y-I-N-O-V-A center.com. We're a, a, a practice in New York. Um, I have 18 talented and awesome colleagues. We're a, a lovely big practice of, uh, of um, uh, like-minded practitioners. And I still practice. I still see patients. Mm. I, I, it is the reason I'm here, I'm sure. Uh, and so I'm in the clinic uh, when I'm not talking to you. <laughs> you have to come when we're in New York. Yeah, we'll truly. come see you. Come and have tea. We yeah. have lovely, you know, um, that's, that's made by some beautiful heartfelt women in Brooklyn. I'm big into the energy of, of, of things, as you know. It's made with, with a lot of love by two young women in Brooklyn. And we have this lovely Yenova tea. I will, I will make you a pot of tea. Oh, we would love that. It's a date. Cannot Thank you wait. so much, Jill. This was such an honor. And we loved speaking with you. And I know our community is going to be really excited. This is some very valuable information that they can take with them and start using right away. So thank you. Yeah. And congratulations on writing such an amazing book and an amazing book tour. 
Thank you so much. And thanks for reading it. Oh, I really appreciate it. It's right by my bed. I, I've really, really enjoyed it. And I'm going to go back to it many mm-hmm. a times. Thank you so much, Jill. If you guys want to pick up energy medicine, you can at Amazon. Mm-hmm. It's such a good one. I recommend. Yeah, it's a great like bedside table before bed. Just get a little. Yeah. Let me know if you spiritual, want to. Spiritual, little science. It to you. It's great. Every book. Uh, we have a post in the secret Facebook group that we just wanted to share. So cute. From Kristen. With a C. She says, yo, can we all just take a sec and feel the gratitude for how wonderful this group is? You've all helped me during some of the most difficult times I've had to deal with this year. And I've never even met any of you. So much love to all of you. I didn't know about any of you, but I used to really struggle. Oh, she says, I don't know about any of you, but I used to really struggle with trusting other women. I'm so thankful to be a part of such a positive and powerful outlet. Same. Hundreds and hundreds of likes. So, so beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much. And those amazing conversations are happening within the secret Almost 30 Podcast Facebook group. There are a bunch of women who are conversing on health, wellness, spirituality, entrepreneurship, personal relationship problems, whatever it is, we are here for you and you can find it on Facebook. Yeah. Thank you so much for your support. We can't wait to see you on tour. Check out almost30podcast.com slash tour. Follow us on Instagram. We have a fun gram that's funny and inspirational and we'll keep you up to date on all the things. That's at almost 30 podcast. I'm at Lindsay Simsick on Instagram and Krista is at 100 blog. blog. I post periodically. (laughs) (laughs) Almost at 100K, baby. Oh, yeah, for almost 30. Let's do it. What should we do to celebrate? Give everyone 100 bucks. We'll start asses. (laughs) (laughs) All right, y'all. Thanks so much for listening. We appreciate you and love you. And we'll see you next time. See you soon. Bye. Bye.